Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss macro developments and asset allocation with our UBS Chief Investment Office and our third-party asset manager partners. Today's conversation will largely focus on a 2022 outlook, though we will also focus on Fed policy, rotational activity within equity markets, risk considerations, just to name a few topics. And of course, we will spend some time on portfolio positioning. Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Richard Bernstein, the founder, Chief Executive Officer, and Chief Investment Officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors. So Jason Rich, it's great to be with you both to kick off the podcast series for 2022. Happy New Year to you both, and thank you for spending some time with our listeners. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the invitation to speak. Thank you, Dan. And uh, good to uh, talk to you again, Richard, at the start of the year. Absolutely. So uh, plenty to cover. So maybe we can begin with a 50,000-foot view of the macro environment as we're making our way into the early days of 2022. Rich, I'm curious from your vantage point, what are your expectations for the macro environment? Conditions are evolving rapidly. We'll get into what we've been hearing from the Fed, what we've been witnessing in equity markets in a few moments. But what's your macro outlook for the year ahead? Rich. So Dan, I think, you know, one of the one of the certainly the spotlight or one of the spotlights has to be on the Fed. And I think everybody knows that and there's not a lot of insight in saying that. But I think, you know, the Fed has tried to make it pretty clear that they're going to tighten monetary policy. And, you know, for all investors, you should always raise an eyebrow when when the Fed says they're going to tighten uh, policy because, you know, historically what, what can end a bull market and what can cause a recession or a profits recession, even if not an economic recession, is a policy error by the Fed, right? None of us care when the Fed makes a policy error uh, in terms of easing too much, right? In our industry, we kind of love that. And, and I personally, I think we've seen that over the past year, year and a half, where the Fed overreacted to to uh to covid and and created bubbles in in a lot of different areas but when when you get the opposite direction i think one always has to be a little bit cautious on the edge just simply because the probability starts going up of a negative uh, policy mistake and I, I think that's the the biggest thing that everybody has to think about you know we've gotten so um uh you know uh, so we've enjoyed the bull market so much i think people I've kind of thought it's normal and certainly for individual investors, you know, that haven't been guided by financial advisors, they think there's some new world order out there. That that's usually a dangerous sign. So I think, you know, we wanna we wanna enter with with a very healthy uh kind of skepticism, not be bearish. I think that's way too extreme, but I think we wanna have a healthy bit of skepticism here. Thank you, Rich. Uh, Jason, from the vantage point of the chief investment office, walk us through your outlook for the year ahead. We can get into the Fed a bit as well. Of course, I recall the most recent Fed meeting minutes, they suggested an even more aggressive or accelerated roadmap than anticipated. That seems to be reinforced by what we're hearing from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell today up on Capitol Hill. But what are your thoughts from the macro lens, Jason? So if we just, you know, kind of leave the Fed aside at the moment, just looking at the, the U.S. economy and even the global economy, by any measures, you know, you know, things are in a good place right now. And growth likely this year will be, you know, around 4%, so, you know, definitely above kind of long-term trend inflation. And we'll find out the CPI for December on Wednesday. It's likely to be a 7 percentish. 
but it should also moderate throughout the year. And, you know, it's open question of how much. Uh, financial pol- or monetary policy is still a coming. The Fed is still buying bonds, even though it's also talking about stopping buying bonds or, or even shrinking its balance sheet later this year. So right now, policy is still becoming more accommodative. So just from that perspective, and given like household balance sheets are in very strong shape, corporate balance sheets are in good shape, the fundamental picture for the U.S. economy is is good. So I think that's sort of the overarching sort of driving view that, you know, yes, policy is changing, but the baseline fundamental starting point is good. I think that kind of drives the overall, the relatively constructive view we have on kind of risk assets. But I'd also say that there's just a lot of kind of known unknowns going on right now, and the Fed is, is one of them. Uh, we, we know the Fed's, Basically, wants to start raising, you know, rates or you know, very soon or sort of tiny policy prop as you know as soon as as March. But I think thereafter, it kind of becomes more of an open question what they're going to do because there's other sort of known unknowns in the economy. Uh, you know, the labor market has tightened much faster than economists and the Fed expected, but there could be more slack still now actually remaining as hopefully the pandemic you know evolves into an, you know endemic situation. But we don't know, you know, how, um, you know, productive, you know, firms will be, you know, without workers. They've been investing more in capital and IT technology. Productivity growth has been pretty good for the past couple of years. Well, that still can be good because it's disinflationary. Because of some of these really economic unknown, known unknowns, I think the Fed policy path going forward is also unknown. So what the Fed has done is, you know, said we want to start, you know, moving very quickly, but thereafter we're going to be kind of outcome dependent. So they've given themselves sort of maximum flexibility, which is good if you're a policymaker. Not so good if you're an investor because, you know, means that you're kind of, you know, succumbing to the whims of either data points that come in or in the case of even today with Jay Powell testifying before Congress, not necessarily walking back some of the recent Fed hawkishness, but saying, well, we might start balance sheet runoff, you know, you know, later this year as opposed to actively looking to shrink the balance sheet, which the market was interpreting last week. So just on that, we've seen the market turn. I think that's kind of the reality of, you know, the, the, play, the marketplace this year is, any news that kind of alters that path a little bit is going to lead to you know, uncertainty and market reaction very quickly. So that, that makes it sort of challenging as an investor. So, Rich, mindful of the policy direction, what we've been hearing from the Fed, taking into account as well the kind of movement we've been witnessing within rates, are you seeing links there, those factors with the rotational activity we've been witnessing recently with inequities? And do you anticipate this kind of rotational activity to persist? What's your outlook, Rich, for equities through 2022? So, Dan, we, we've tried to emphasize that we don't think that investors should look at the market, right? That, that one's expectations for the market overall um, probably mask some of the excitement that's going on within the market. So we prefer right now, as we look for towards 2022, to the remainder of 2022, um, is, is to think of the stock market as a seesaw. The fulcrum of that seesaw is the market, the way people like to talk about it. But on one side of the seesaw, you have what I would argue are kind of bubble-like assets. We've argued that there's a bubble going on in long-duration assets, things like you know uh, innovation, disruption, technology, cryptocurrencies, long-duration bonds, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's more, mostly because of the Fed's action, the Fed distorting the long end of the yield curve. You've associated had a bubble in long-duration assets. Uh, long-duration assets are ones with longer time horizons. And um, uh, that's, that's kind of our view, that you've got a bubble on that side. But the beauty of bubbles is that it means that investors become very myopic. They focus on only a very small universe of what they believe are acceptable investments. 
And and we've kind of argued you want to be on the other side of the seesaw. What's on the other side of the seesaw? Well, there is literally a world of opportunity on the other side of the seesaw. So whether it's non-U.S. stocks, whether it's cyclical stocks, whether it's energy, whether it's commodities, whether it's all kinds of different things all around the world, there's just this world of opportunity to sit there on one side of the seesaw. But on the other side of the seesaw, you have these very extreme overvalued uh, uh, entities. Now, it, I, I, I want to make something very, very clear here. That the fact that an investor might find technology, innovation, disruption, cryptocurrencies very unattractive does not mean that they will not do something to the economy. They will not be beneficial to the economy over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Those are two separate uh, uh, issues as to whether something's a good investment, as to whether it's going to be additive to the economy. They're not the same thing. And people have a very tough time understanding that. So let's go back and, and talk very briefly about 2000 and after the 2000 bubble. During the tech bubble in 99-2000, there were lots of promises made about how the Internet was going to change the economy, about how cellular communications were going to change the economy. And over the next 10 to 15 years, they did dramatically change the economy. But if you had bought technology stocks, even the NASDAQ 100, which were the, quote, real companies at the time, if you bought those real companies in December of 99, four or five months before the peak of the bubble, it took you 14 years to break even. So think about that. You had, you had the technology affect the economy, but the investments were terrible investments. That's the difference. That's why, why, why I think people need guidance right now is because they're getting sucked in by all the hype and forgetting that it's not the hype that drives stocks, it's the valuations and the fundamentals that drive stocks. And so I don't think we should be thinking about the market, Dan. I think we should be thinking of the seesaw and being on the correct side of the seesaw. Hey, Dan, I can jump here and here. And I guess first just to comment on, kind of follow up on which would you describe in terms of you know, the 2000 sort of dot-com era. And then actually, then I'll have to come back to you, Richard, with a, a question. You know, I think sometimes people, like, they, they talk about bubbles, you know, that they're all the same. But there's a very big difference between bubbles that are, let's, in simple terms, equity-based versus those that are kind of leverage-financed. So the, the dot-com bubble, clearly their equity valuations went up, but there wasn't a lot of debt used to finance these companies. So when that bubble burst, the actual damage to the economy was wealthy. It was a pretty mild recession in the early 2000s, all things considered. And one could even argue that you almost sometimes to attract a lot of capital, you know, and explore a lot of new ideas, that this is actually long-term you know, beneficial to the economy because it actually led to a lot of investment that ultimately were out in very productive ways for the economy uh, that, you know, for multiple years. So that was kind of good investment. If you measure it by stock returns, you know, through up, you know, from like 96 to 2002, you might disagree. Versus the housing bubble, which took on a lot of debt, which obviously ultimately led to, you know, kind of malinvestment, unproductive investment. So I think what we're seeing in some cases right now is a repeat of the, the technology equity investment. And even arguably you could say the same thing in digital asset space, you know, especially if it's kind of companies sort of you know, starting new technology. So I think that's equity versus debt bubbles are two very different things. Equity ones can actually be good for the economy over the long term. Debt ones tend to be much more damaging. And we're dealing with more of an, I think, an equity bubble. 
the treasury you know, market is you know a whole other topic in terms of that, but I think the, in the private sector it's it's less kind of challenging. But you know, Rich, just in thinking about equity specifically, and there's definitely been even this time last year, I remember talking about you know bubbles in the markets, and we saw at the start of last year, SPACs were just booming, you know, unsustainably, and then by mid February, when rates started to rise off of you know better economic news, we saw that kind of come tumbling down. Similar, starting mid-November, late November, when the Fed became a little more hawkish in its rhetoric, since then we've seen IPOs, or recent IPOs, SPACs, non-profitable tech down 30%. You zoom out for the past few years, it's still elevated, you know, a very good performance overall. So if you think of, you know, deflating some air out of the bubbles that were taking place in those markets, how far do you think that has gone? Are we like second inning, fifth inning? Because a lot of people might ask us, like, when do you start to kind of re-enter and maybe kind of buy these, you know, fallbacks? And I think that's, you know, from a tactical perspective, like, how much, where do you think we are? Is it dead can bounce before it kind of goes further? Yeah, I think I think we're still very early in in the deflation uh, of the bubble, uh, Jason. There's still, you know, we have we have all kinds of indicators that try to show, you know, where people are looking and and where sentiment is in different sectors and things like that, and and it's it's. It's actually been quite quite amazing that despite some of the performance, uh, rather some of the underperformance that we've seen in certain tech areas and certain tech-related and innovation-related investments, um, there's still an amazing fascination with it, and and uh, people are looking to get back in. and And I'll share with you um, kind of a funny uh, anecdote from from 2000 and. And for those of you who, who were in the business, you might remember the, the bubble actually peaked about March, April of 2000. And during the summer of 2000, there was a rally in, in tech stocks. And I was interviewed um, in my previous position. I was interviewed uh, by a, a financial journalist and on TV. And she she said to me very disdainfully, you know, well, if this isn't the bottom and we shouldn't get back into technology, when should we get back in? I mean, really disdainfully. And and I said, um, without naming names here, I said, well, frankly, when people like you stop asking me that question. Um, well, needless to say, it was a long time before I got back on that show. Um, but but I think that's a good way to think about it is that, that when the dust settles, people don't care anymore. And and that did happen with, with the tech bubble. It took several years, but there was a point where people just, ex, you know, accepted it became accepted that technology was was not a good investment. In fact, if you had waited several years, you would have found that you probably did much better than some of the statistics I previously quoted. Um, so I, I think it's a little early in, in that process right now. Uh, the way I suggest people think about investing is to look for sectors where capital is relatively scarce. It's pretty hard to find some uh, scarcity of capital anywhere because of the central banks around the world kind of flooding us with, with liquidity. But you want to think about where capital is, is relatively scarce. I, I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that the tech sector is, is starved for capital just yet. I don't think that's, that's quite where we are. Uh, I think other sectors, you can make a better, better argument. And, and I, I think one of the surprises, we may want to talk about this later, I, I think some of the surprises may be that the growth sectors in terms of stock performance, not necessarily economic impact, but stock performance may not be in traditional growth areas, right? And, and, and I think that could be something very interesting over the next, you know, three, five, ten years. So first thing, Rich, um, you're in the trust circle here. So if you want to spill the beans on who that reporter was, it's uh, now, now's the time. <laughs> I will pause momentarily if you want to answer. 
Um, I guess this, we'll, no, we'll we'll let that go. We, she, you know, she and I have made up, and we're we're good friends again. So I don't I don't want to bring. Okay. I don't want to reopen old wounds. <laughs> yeah, this wellness podcast will go viral. That that's not a bad thing from my perspective either. So, um, right. But just one more thing on sort of the tech and growth. I mean, there's definitely like there's the mega cap tech, you know, fang stocks that you know, are expensive, but then you look at their earnings are, you know, been, they've been able to kind of crank out their earnings, although you wonder like how much more valuable can a company like Apple get when it's at $3 trillion already versus the unprofitable, the more definitely more speculative parts of tech. And we've seen steam come out of that part of the past, you know, certainly a few months. But if you look at like the big mega cap techs last year, they were kind of flatlining for much of the year once you got into kind of the spring and moved forward. So it does feel like there's two different segments of the tech space. Uh, and one could be more violent in terms of its pullback and has more to go. But then how do you think about sort of within technology and if investors want to kind of play it, is it still, you know, the, the, the big names, are they going to be just kind of like, so like what Microsoft was for about five years after 2000, it really didn't do much for a number of years. Is that kind of the fate of these companies? And like, how do you sort of differentiate that sort of growth tech space right now? Yeah. So Jason, I think when, well, look, when times get tough, in any sector, whether it's tech, whether it's consumer staples, whether it's energy, whatever, when times get tough in that sector, high quality stocks within the sector always, always with kind of a quotes, because there may be a time where it doesn't work. But generally, let's say, uh, high quality stocks will outperform lower quality stocks within the sector. Right. So if you think that the tech sector is going to come under pressure for a number of years, yes, the high quality tech companies will outperform the more marginal tech companies. Um, as money managers, that's not really the way we can think about it. We have to think about it in terms, will high-quality tech outperform other sectors? You know, will high-quality tech outperform low-quality energy? Will high-quality tech outperform consumer staples? You know, Will high-quality tech outperform non-U.S. Uh, technology stocks or something like that? Those are the kind of decisions that we have to make. So if you are a, if one is a dedicated U.S. equity, U.S. technology equity oriented investor, and you don't have the latitude that we have as a money manager, well, yeah, you'd want to look at the high quality tech versus the low quality tech, of course. But for us, we can't think that way because we have, we, as I said, we have this universe of attractive investments and, and, uh, you know, we have to make the judgment as to whether you know, lower quality or just forget quality, period, while other sectors outperform high-quality tech. And, and so we have to think about it a little bit differently. Rich, maybe looking outside of the U.S. for a few moments, how do U.S. equities compare with other regions? So, Dan, I think um, to say that non-U.S. stocks are cheap relative to U.S. stocks is providing absolutely zero value added. They are, and I think everybody knows that. And I don't think anybody, anybody's going to be surprised if I, you know, by making that comment. However, value alone doesn't make something doesn't make something attractive. We like to look at at fundamentals and improving fundamentals first, and then we'll look at valuation. And so the the frustrating part with a place like Europe, which, where we have been overweight, by the way, and has worked with mixed mixed success, to be perfectly frank, um, is because the fundamentals are are kind of stopping and starting and stopping and starting. And so, you know, there's no doubt it's they're very undervalued relative to U.S. They're, in fact, profit fundamentals in general appear to be stronger, but the consistency is just not there yet. And so it's been very frustrating. The other thing I would say is that if people um, believe that the global equity markets are, are in for a correction, uh, you know, then 
there, there's, you know, Japan historically has been a very low beta country. Now, a lot of people laugh at that when I say this. They say, oh, it's because it never goes up. Well, yeah, to some extent, that's absolutely true. But on the other side, it doesn't go down either. So if you have to maintain equity exposure and you're worried about corrections, uh, Japan historically has, has pretty good upside-downside capture relative to some of the other markets around the world. So I think the, the point that I want to make to everybody, though, is to not be geographically myopic, right? During bubbles, you know, people become incredibly myopic. There's no place to invest other than, like, U.S. tech. And, and I think the, that one has to be, um, you know, very cautious of that kind of comment because there are opportunities. There are places where fundamentals are improving. And, um, you know, not with the, not with anything that we've seen in the United States over the past two years, but, you know, the profit fundamentals are improving in places like Europe, in places like Japan. And it's, it's worth looking at again. I, I definitely think. So, Jason, I'm hearing some similarities when you take into account the views of the chief investment office when it comes to overseas regional preferences with inequities. Anything there you'd like to add to, expand on? Well, the, the two regions that we, you know, Richard just talked about, like Europe and Japan, those are two of our, you know, more preferred regions, you know, in international equities. Uh, you know, for reasons that you kind of alluded to, valuations are a good predictor for 10 years. They're not a predictor for the next one to two. Saying so that's not the reason necessarily to buy. But on Japan, aside from being low beta, I think what, you know, Japanese equities have historically also been, you know, relatively good performers when the U.S. interest rates arise. And then we've experienced that, you know, sort of in the past six days. Uh, and it's something we think that the trend is higher for interest rates, you know, the rest of this year, but even potentially kind of going forward. So thinking about that environment, you want to be hedged against that. We know that's not good for U.S. growth. Uh, all sequels, a long duration asset. Japanese equities are, are one area that we like. Another factor is the policy differential uh, with the Fed eager to start tightening, whereas you know, the ECB, the Bank of Japan are kind of happy to kind of sit on the sidelines. Certainly the Bank of Japan, the market's not pricing any rate hikes for them this year or maybe the next year, maybe never for that matter. Um, so just that policy differential would mean there's still more sort of policy support, especially in a country like or, or a region like Europe where uh, – you know, they have a sort of a stabilization or infrastructure spending package that's going to start to disperse funds this year. So whereas there's a contraction of fiscal policy in the U.S. this year, Europe is a bit of, you know, the opposite. Um, and the other thing is, and this is something that, uh, you know, we'll see if this plays out, but the the Omicron wave that's kind of gripping the world right now, it's, you know, it's kind of has spread across the U.S., even if it looks like the place like New York City might now starting to be rollover. It's spreading across Europe. But it's also moving so quickly that the peak could happen or was likely to happen before the end of this month. And we've seen elsewhere with these waves that when it turns, it turns very quickly. I point this out because unlike last year where the waves tended to be rolling regionally and also the vaccine rollout was kind of regional based or kind of rolled out first U.S., then Europe, then parts of Asia. The world this time can actually come out of the you know this Omicron wave in a more synchronized fashion, in a more protected fashion, as soon as kind of the February, March timeframe, which if that happens, the global growth kind of tends to sort of reaccelerate. In those kind of environments, international equities, Europe, Japan tend to benefit as well. So, you know, long-term valuations are attractive, but there are other policy and even maybe global cycle dynamics that would uh, encourage people to look outside of the U.S. I've said this multiple times, and you know, it has moved in fits and starts, and so you do worry about being kind of the, the broken record. Uh, but I think investors who have given up, I think it's just important to remind people that in local currency terms. European equities actually did better than the S&P 500 last year, which was up 29% total return. But the dollar strengthened, so in dollar terms, it underperformed a little bit. 
the dollar is probably not going to strengthen much more. So I think if that's been a big headwind for investing internationally, if that even just becomes neutral, that starts to make the picture of uh, looking abroad become that much more attractive. I thought maybe we can spend a quick moment on earnings, considering we have the Q4 reporting coming down the pike very quickly. And backing that out, if you reflect on 2021, exceptionally strong earnings growth. So with that in mind, Rich, what are your expectations for earnings in 2022, especially with concerns about inflationary pressure squeezing margins? So, so Dan, I think, you know, look, one of the stories for for 2021 was the huge surge in the United States in, in corporate profits, right? I mean, S&P earnings were up, I don't know, 30, 40%, maybe a little more. Um, I, I think, and part of the reason that, that we had forecasted that was simply uh, easy comparisons versus, versus 2020, right? In 2020, we had the, the initial wave of the pandemic. We had the short, we had the shutdowns and comparisons became very easy and everybody kind of poo-pooed that. But but sure enough, you know, we had a huge surge in, in profitability. Well, in, as you go to 2022 and into 2023, that starts to work the opposite direction, right? Comparisons get harder and earnings growth rates are going to slow. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to have a profits recession. I don't want I don't want to carry this out to an extreme, but we might go from that 30, 40 percent earnings growth to, you know, five to 10 percent earnings growth or five to 15 percent earnings growth. You know, let's not put some level of spurious precision on the forecast. But, you know, we're, we're, the point I'm trying to make is we can see some meaningful slowdown in, in profits growth. And I think that's important um, because um, a lot of companies that experienced, uh, you know, this huge surge in profitability may may have trouble, uh, you know, what have you done for me lately, may have trouble putting on an encore. In, in 2023. So I think when, when we start talking about cyclicality next year, um, I think or next year, this year, I'm sorry, it's 2022. When we start talking about cyclicality. I think we have to, uh, maybe as we think about going through the year, moving up in quality in cyclical industries, right? I think the story in 2021 was to buy the, the junkiest companies in cyclical industries. They perform very, very well. Uh, in 2022, as the year progresses, certainly as we get past the first or second quarter, I think the emphasis may be on higher quality, still cyclical companies, because we're not talking about a profits recession. The problem for a lot of investors will be you're going to have to balance that out against a set of assets, which, again, we believe are in a bubble. So it, it means that your sector preferences are going to have to um, be be very careful. I mean, we're we're still looking for you know, things like consumer staples to, to work better as the year goes on. They work fine, but they may work better as the year goes on. But you may actually be coupling that with something like energy. Um, you know, you can have some weird bedfellows uh, as, as we go through the year, which is, which is not atypical, but it's not normal either. So, so I think profits, we want to look for profitability to slow down. Outside the United States, quickly, outside the United States, we may actually see um, in certain areas, you might actually see profits accelerate uh, a little bit. Um, I don't want to make it sound like it's a global thing. That's not true. It looks like profits are going to slow down in many regions around the world. Profits growth, rather, is going to slow down in many regions around the world. But but there may be pockets of acceleration. I think we want to we want to look for that. What about your thoughts, Jason, on earnings growth when you take into account these inflationary pressures and the kind of performance we witnessed throughout 2021? Well, our official forecast is 12% earnings growth for the S&P 500 this year. 
uh, you know, predicated on 8% revenue growth. Uh, so if you think about, you know, the overall economic environment of the U.S. growing around 4%, inflation will probably average, you know, throughout the year over around or over 4%. That's 8% normal of GDP. In that kind of environment, we should still see, uh, you know, very strong earnings growth, assuming that the balance in terms of, uh, you know, higher revenue is not completely offset by the margins being compressed, which is, is a possibility. I think that's kind of one of the unknowns that we face this year. Uh, but overall, still a, a positive story, one that I think perhaps early on still favors the more cyclical sectors because this momentum and economic activity is quite strong. But that can transition as, as the year kind of goes on, as Rich alluded to, like regarding something like kind of consumer staples. Uh, but I, I just want to ask you, Rich, one question, because I think we did this podcast about a year ago, and you made a comment throughout a credit call that you know, earnings growth, you know, consensus around 20, 25% at the start of the year it'll probably end up being close to 40% or maybe even slightly higher depending on what happens with for Q earnings. And on that podcast, you said like you could see things kind of being explosive to the upside, especially in the more cyclical areas. So the risk skew at the time seemed skewed to the upside. If you think right now, is it, do you think more skewed to the downside relative to your, to your baseline or kind of more skewed to the upside? And maybe it's not enough for the market overall, not specific sectors, but um, you're kind of open-ended to how you want to answer that. Yeah, I think, Jason, you know, I think um, – it's difficult to answer because people are going to going to take this as like being a, a hugely bearish comment, and I, I don't mean it to be that way. You know, as I said, profits growth is going to slow. Uh, you mentioned that your forecast is about 12%, I think you just said, and and that's roughly where we are. We're, as I said, somewhere between you know five and 15 um, is basically where we are. And and but I think that um, the important point is that profits growth is going to slow, and so as that happens. You know, and if the Fed is continuing to tighten monetary policy, uh, I would say the risk is to the downside. Now, what could change that? What could change that is um, inflation doesn't subside. We actually think it's going to be higher than people think, but we'll we'll kind of subside a little bit, still be higher. But but that it doesn't subside, and certain industries have an amazing amount of pricing power. Well, in which case, if commodities start going up again, and, and year on year we start seeing a rally in commodity prices. That would be very, very bullish for corporate profits overall, because one has to remember that the most cyclical sectors are the largest determinants to the profit cycle, right? The cycle, by definition, is attributable to cyclicals. So um, if we started seeing cyclical earnings uh, reaccelerate, the profit cycle itself would reaccelerate. So you could have that happen. That would be very inflation-oriented. But to answer your question uh, explicitly, without trying not to sound too bearish, I would say the risks are now skewed slightly to the downside. Not not immensely, but slightly. So I know we just have a couple of minutes left. Just in the way of final thoughts and takeaways, and feel free to include any risk considerations top of mind that might not have yet been covered. But what we'll do, Jason, we'll provide Richard Bernstein with the final word here. So Jason, I'll go to you first on final thoughts and takeaways. Well, I think a few big picture points I'd want to make. Uh, so one thing, it's, 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 we expect this still to be a year of, of kind of good, you know, or solid returns across you know, different asset classes. But if we compare it to last year, it's one of sort of mean reversion. U.S. large caps won't be quite as good. You know, EM equities won't be quite as bad. Commodities probably won't be quite as strong. Uh, so that's one point. The second is, you know, I could say there'll be higher volatility, but I think, the, you know, the more kind of telling point might be that we get a clear definition or, or a clear sign of what path the economy is going to take as we move kind of later into the year. Is it going to be one where inflation does moderate, but growth stays high? Is it one where inflation stays high and the Fed has to become much more restrictive? 
is a is there a Goldilocks scenario where inflation moderates, growth stays strong, the Fed can be you know the modest and tightening, uh, and we look like we're kind of a late '90s kind of growth scenario. Depending on which one of these plays out, the right investment playbook you know, could shift around. And so I think at the moment we're one that's still very much kind of you know recovery sort of you know reflation you know, bias toward that. But I think the shift will happen at some point this year, and the question is like it, it's going to hinge on the macro environment. And then just in terms of I think some of the risks, you know. Saying that you know, something with the pandemic is sort of an evergreen thing, same thing kind of you know, flagging geopolitical issues. That's sort of an always an evergreen thing to point out to. I guess where I'm kind of a little more focused on as a risk is just what state is the U.S. economy in? You know, could we be actually much late, later cycle than we anticipate? Could the Fed end up, you know, over tightening? So things kind of come to an end much sooner than we expect. I think that's kind of the, the real bear case scenario. The markets are definitely not priced for that. Uh, and to me, that, that's something along those lines of the, of the market's kind of fearing that. Maybe it would be a repeat at the end of 2018, where you know, equity sold off 20 percent, you know, in the last uh, you know few weeks of the year. That's you know that would be some sort of replicating that kind of scenario. That that's what I fear for this year as, as a real risk. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Rich, any final thoughts or takeaways you'd like to leave us with? Sure, Dan, Jason. First of all, thank you for inviting me to to take part in this. And I think if, if I had a, a closing word, I, I I'd be saying, look, I mentioned before that we think there's a, literally a world of opportunities, that people have become very, very myopic. And um, one has to remember that nothing just happens in the stock market. There always has to be an economic, macroeconomic, fundamental reason why things change. And I think that change, which we haven't really discussed in detail, is inflation. And And we're not huge inflationists. So I don't want to make this sound like we're off the deep end. We do think inflation is going to moderate, but we're not going back where we were. The investors have to realize we went through basically a 20-year period of more or less sub-5% nominal growth in the United States, nominal growth being real plus inflation. We at RBA, we strongly doubt we're going back to that sub-5% nominal growth world. What that means is that the investments that worked during that whole period of sub-5% nominal growth are unlikely to be the leadership going forward. And if that's the case, it's important to think about this world of opportunity. Where are people not invested? Where are the opportunities around the world that might be better suited if U.S. GDP trends instead of sub-5%, more than 5%? And and it's unrealistic to think that if the world changes, the, the leadership within the stock market won't. So I would just say to reiterate, there's a world of opportunity. Don't be myopic. Be open to what could possibly outperform if nominal GDP trends higher than 5% as opposed to the past 20 years. Well, Rich, Jason, it's great catching up with you both as always. Thank you very much for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, sharing your insights, your guidance. We'll look forward to picking back up with our conversation at some point this year, though. Thank you again for joining us on How Should I Be Positioned. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Sam. How Should I Be Positioned is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.